Welcome to Ingest, the podcast series designed for primary care clinicians and brought to you by the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology. My name's Charlie Andrews, a GP and also a GP with an extended role in gastroenterology based in the southwest of England. In this series, I aim to speak to experts in various fields of gastroenterology to provide you with useful, relevant and up-to-date advice about how to manage common clinical complaints in gastroenterology in order to further your understanding and learning around gastrointestinal conditions. Just a quick reminder before we begin, the purpose of this podcast is educational. It is not designed to replace your own clinical judgment or clinical guidelines. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be speaking to Helen Jarvis about abnormal liver function tests and with a focus on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and the diagnosis of this condition. This is obviously a hugely relevant topic. I'm constantly checking liver blood tests and frequently picking up abnormalities and having to act on them. And we know that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is hugely prevalent within the general population. And so having an understanding of how to manage abnormal liver function tests and also how to work up patients with possible fatty liver disease is really important. Aside from this being a hugely relevant topic, it was also a topic that was requested by one of our listeners. And this reminds me that I wanted to point out to you that it's really helpful if you provide feedback around the series and suggestions for topics that you would like me to cover, because I really want to make this series as relevant and useful to you as possible. So please do provide feedback. You can go on to the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology website, and there is a feedback um, button that you can click on. Any feedback that you provide is hugely helpful. Any suggestions for topics, I'll always try to accommodate. So without any further ado, let's get started with today's episode. Well, Helen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about liver function tests. Um, do you want to just start off by telling the audience a bit about you and what you do? Yeah, sure. So I'm I'm a GP in the northeast of England, in Northumberland, in a fairly rural practice, but I've also worked in urban practices in Newcastle. Um, I came to GP via a route of a bit of gastroenterology training and some training in public health. And I'm also now a kind of academic GP, I guess you would say. So I spend half my week um, doing a PhD, um, which is basically trying to improve detection and management of liver disease in primary care in a very broad sense. Amazing. And we are talking about liver function tests and we're going to talk a bit about alcohol related liver disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease but I guess it's really important just to start off by asking the question because I see so many abnormal liver function tests and I mean I was in clinic this morning and I'm processing my blood tests and they're they're they're, they're, they're just so common how how would you describe what is an abnormal liver function test and can you sort of break it down a little bit for us yeah, well, I think that's a really good question, isn't it? Because like you say, we do so many of them and there are so many abnormalities. But in a lot of cases, there isn't that much wrong with the person's liver. And then on the flip side of that, people who have quite severe liver damage from various causes may have normal, what we call liver function tests. So it's really tricky compared to interpretation of other bloods where you've got 
an HbA1c of this, that tells you how bad someone's diabetes control is. Uh, you know, an EGFR of this, we're pretty sure about that being a sort of, uh, you know, nice sequential uh, guide as to what's going on with their kidneys and how that function's decreasing. But liver function tests, we don't have that sort of certainty with. So not only are there a lot of them and a lot of combinations of things that can go wrong, but they don't have that nice linear kind of relationship to how actually damaged someone's liver is. So I think there's, there, are, there are lots of problems with them. We probably check too many of them when we're not really thinking about the context of when we're checking them. In some people, we probably don't check them enough. And also we probably get a bit of blasé about uh, passing off minor abnormalities in liver blood tests because we see so many of them and we often don't see any outcome as a result of those minor abnormalities. So it's a real kind of minefield. And I think even quite experienced GPs can go to endless lectures on abnormal liver blood tests and still come away feeling not particularly confident about their 50 blood results that are coming through to them and what to actually do with some of these abnormalities. Yeah, I totally agree. I, th there are lots of different combinations. It's so hard to know what you need to take seriously and what needs to, you know, you, you don't need to be quite so worried about. It is really hard. Um, yeah, I think I think for me, it's like what I've sort of learned over the years is and I guess it's like this with lots of things in medicine, but the context is the real king of what you're doing. You know, if you're just checking someone's liver blood tests because they're on a certain medication, then that's the context in which you're checking it. Um, if the context of someone's mild abnormality in liver blood tests is that they're grossly obese, have poorly controlled diabetes and dyslipidemia, then that has a completely different meaning for that patient as compared to somebody who is otherwise well and it's just a sort of blip of an abnormality which is probably going to go away. So I think really stepping back and thinking about why we're doing the liver blood test in the first place really is crucial in then knowing whether and how we should be interpreting that that abnormality so really go back to a sort of more risk factor based approach to what why you're doing the test in the first place and then interpret it in the context of that risk that's really helpful so kind of stepping back a bit of context why you're doing the test pretty good message for quite a lot of the tests we do aren't they I mean I can think of loads of tests where out of context it's very hard to interpret so I think that's a really helpful message so how would yeah. you approach some some abnormal liver function tests so there's some patterns to look for things that are common that we can pick up yeah so i mean i guess when when we're doing abnormal liver blood tests there's a sort of broad categorization so you might be looking for a more hepatitic pattern or a more cholestatic pattern as the two broad categories or an isolated high bilirubin i guess is the third one that sneaks in there quite commonly so that's quite an easy one sort of isolated high bilirubin most likely to be gilberts or gilberts or however you want to pronounce it and uh, and really if, if everything else is normal um then that can be confirmed by looking at the kind of conjugated versus unconjugated fractions and making sure that's what it is and then that can be kind of forgotten about when you're thinking about the more broad categories of kind of hepatitic and cholestatic I guess, again, you're thinking about what, what the underlying causes will be. And there's some overlap between those categories. So drugs, for example, or, or hepatocellular carcinoma or cancer might cause a kind of a combination or an autoimmune condition might cause a combination of some of those hepatitic and cholestatic patterns. 
but for the sort of commonest causes of liver disease, which are obviously the uh, alcohol-related liver disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the most common abnormalities you will see will be kind of minor abnormalities in a kind of hepatitic type of pattern, I guess. Um, so going back to the sort of cholestatic pattern, if you see a cholestatic pattern and that's confirmed, so a high alk FOS um, and gamma GT, then you know, unless that's in incredibly mild and transient, then you'd probably want to be getting some sort of imaging of the of the biliary tree and, and, and liver, i.e. an ultrasound to look for the sort of common causes in terms of cholelithiasis or problems with the bile ducts, etc., and rule out the nasty causes in terms of blockages and masses and things in the bile ducts. Um, whereas much more commonly, if you're seeing that hepatitic pattern, then that indicates a sort of well, it doesn't really indicate anything about the function of the liver. It's just telling you that there's high levels of those hepatitic enzymes, which mean there's been more cell turnover or cell death in the liver. And that could have either been a trans for a transient reason or for a kind of more chronic reason. Um, so, yeah, I guess seeing those abnormalities in those two broad categories is helpful in the first first instance. Just, just taking you back and going through it step by step, if that's okay. So with the isolated bilirubin, and you, you know, that is a common pattern and it is often the Gilbert syndrome. And, you know, would you always recommend doing the conjugated and unconjugated bilirubin in those situations to confirm that? Well, I mean, I think if, if it's someone who's kind of, you know, you look back and they've had that mild rise in their bilirubin for the last 40 years and they're now 80 years old and nothing's happened and, and it hasn't changed, then there's probably not a great deal of reason to do it. I guess it's only if there's some diagnostic doubt in terms of what's going on that I would recommend just confirming it as a one-off and then it's done and it doesn't need to be done going forward. Yeah. Um, so yeah, again, the context of the, of the situation, I suppose. And then Thinking about the um, cholestatic picture, you were talking about the alkphos being elevated and that we see that a lot. That is a very common pattern, isn't it? Is there a number that we should be particularly concerned about? So if it's above a certain number, how would you approach just an isolated raised ALP in someone who is generally well? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think that is a tricky one. And I would probably say that most people will have some sort of local regional guidelines on that, or there's the British Society of Gastroenterology guidelines on that. Um, even they don't necessarily have very defined kind of cutoffs for an isolated ALKFOS. I guess the important thing is to make sure that you're looking at it as it is a liver cause for the ALKFOS. So, you know, is the calcium okay? And, and are you happy there's no bone disease or any other reason for a raised ALKFOS? Um, and then if you're, if it's in the context, if you think it's coming from the liver, then just doing the very basic investigations to make sure you're not missing anything serious and then as long as it's not increasing I guess it's looking at it in a dynamic way mm -hmm. uh, you know if, if it is like someone who's always got a little bit of a slightly low platelets if it's sort of static and been like that for 10 years then it's probably just how it is for them and, and, and nothing to worry about so probably haven't answered that very well I don't think there is any sort of definite cutoff on wh when you would kind of be more or less worried and I think that's the problem with most liver blood tests mm. is the degree of abnormality is not always related to the degree of worry unfortunately and with that yeah that's a really good point and with that thinking about ALT because that's the one that we often see a bit elevated 
And you've already said that in some conditions where you have quite advanced liver disease, there's not very much to see on the liver function tests. And the converse is true for sort of more mild disease. That that's quite it makes it even more confusing and concerning, doesn't it, really? But um, how would you approach and and how should we think about sort of borderline raised ALTs and um well, I mean, the, the kind of the, the guidance on this has changed a bit recently. If you look at the national guidance, so I tend to use the British Society of Gastroenterology abnormal liver blood test guidance. But as well as that, that just there's been lots of publications and a general move towards not just consistently repeating mildly abnormal results and hoping they'll kind of go away because they might fluctuate and go just below the normal range again. And then you might check it a year later and it's just above the normal range again. But rather just, you know, when you get a mildly raised ALT, again, think about the context that you're doing it in. And if there's any reason to suspect non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is probably the most common cause, then, you know, do some basic investigations to look for that and also assess for any liver fibrosis, essentially. So, you know, I don't think, again, there should be a sort of absolute cutoff of ALT, of which you then don't or do, you know, investigate. Some of the guidelines still recommend repeating as a one-off to make sure it's still persistently raised, but either repeat once or don't repeat at all. And then just do some basic liver screen tests to rule out the other slightly less common causes of liver disease. So usually I would say that should entail an autoimmune screen, a viral hepatitis screen, a ferritin to look for hemochromatosis. And once you've done those, then just make some sort of assessment, usually by using something like the Fib4 score or the NAFLD fibrosis score, if they have any risk factors at all for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, just to reassure yourself that they are at low risk of liver fibrosis. So really whatever the cause of that mildly raised ALT is, that's not going away. Um, we can say if they have a low Fib4 score or a low NAFLD fibrosis score, that they're at low risk of progression to liver fibrosis. And we can be quite happy that they don't have any significant liver disease from whatever cause at that point in time. And you talked a bit about ultrasound, certainly with the cholestatic picture. Where does ultrasound fit in with our assessment of the patient with the with abnormal liver function test? So yeah, again, and this is this is this is an area where there's been quite a lot of debate recently, and I think the guidelines are probably going to change on this, or there's going to there already are moves to sort of say not everyone with abnormal liver blood tests, which are mild and in the context of likely fatty liver disease, needs to have an ultrasound because what how is that going to change your management? You know, most of them will show up as having fat on the on the ultrasound. And there's been some studies which have shown that they don't really show anything else on the ultrasound. So we're not missing lots of cancers or, or, or other other causes of liver disease if we don't do ultrasounds on people with mildly raised ALT. Um, so it's just a sort of way of coding or ticking a box for fatty liver disease. But we could probably just code or tick that box based on the fact that they have lots of other metabolic risk factors and a mildly raised ALT. That should be enough information to say they've probably got non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or fatty liver caused by the metabolic syndrome. So at the moment, in a lot of the regional guidelines, as part of that first line kind of liver screen as such, a liver ultrasound is in there. But as we know in general practice, if we did liver ultrasounds on every single person with an ALT of 42 or 45, 
we'd be kind of overwhelming the system. So my, my personal practice within that is that if they've got a cholestatic picture or there's any diagnostic doubt as to the cause of those liver blood tests, then part of that diagnostic workup would often include an ultrasound probably prior to seeking some advice from secondary care as to what the diagnosis might be. But if, you, if you're pretty sure what the diagnosis is um, and they've only got mild abnormality in the ALT is the only liver blood test that's abnormal, then I don't necessarily do an ultrasound scan before I start doing those other tests to look for, um, you know, whether they might have a likelihood of liver fibrosis. So before doing those FIB4 scores or NAFL fibrosis scores or whatever way you're going to use to triage out all of the likely kind of benign steatosis patients from those who may be at slightly higher risk of having progressed to fibrotic liver disease. I think it's a really good time for us to really focus on NAFLD at the moment, if that's all right. And just, just go into that in more detail because you've you brought up quite a lot of really useful things in terms of things like the risk factors. You've mentioned there about FIB scores and, and scoring systems for fibrosis. Can we go yes. through this in more detail and talk a bit more about how to risk assess people um, and, and your recommendations around that? Yeah. So as we've already mentioned, the problem with just doing what we would classify as the basic liver blood tests, so your ALKFOS, ALT, bilirubin and gamma GT plus albumin possibly is, that's not giving us much of an idea about what's actually happening with the function of the liver. It's just telling us about some raised enzymes indicating some sort of damage of some sort. So um, what we do know in general, and this goes holds for other causes of liver disease, but it, particularly for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, is that the presence or absence of fibrosis in the liver, so sort of stiffening of the liver, um, is the most important predictor of long-term poor outcomes for these patients, both from the point of view of liver cirrhosis and liver cancer and liver outcomes, but also thinking more broadly about their risks of, say, cardiovascular disease outcomes, poor outcomes from um, more, more a, a wider range of outcomes. So really, when we're seeing patients with abnormal liver blood tests, particularly mildly raised abnormal ALTs in the context of metabolic syndrome, who we think might have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the most important thing we can do in primary care to risk stratify that group of patients is make some sort of assessment of whether or not we think they're at high risk of having liver fibrosis and therefore at high risk of going on to develop cirrhosis or liver cancer or any other poor outcome. So the way that we can do that, and we cannot do that just based on those basic liver blood tests. So what have been developed to try and help us, and these are now um, available in, diff in different areas, in different combinations of the country, but essentially available to all are these what we call indirect serum fibrosis markers, which are essentially just a, a, a calculation that's done based on a group of the blood tests that we already do, usually involving ALT, AST and the platelet count and then sometimes other factors are taken in so for example if they're diabetic or what age they are or um, a couple of some of the tests involve other other sort of demographic factors and a score is worked out using these blood tests primarily based around the ratio between the AST level and the ALT level to give us some idea of how high risk that patient is to have developed fibrosis. So we know that in the fibrosing liver, usually AST 
is higher than ALT. So even something as simple as the AST to ALT ratio being above one gives you quite a good indication that they're at higher risk of someone where those blood tests are the other way around. Okay. So the most commonly used one of these, what are called indirect serum fibrosis markers is something called the FIB4 score. And that basically, as I say, just uses ALT, AST and the platelet count to come up with a number um, and then if you look on the, on the calculator, there's various cutoffs as to what that number should be to put the patient at, at low risk, at sort of intermediate indeterminate risk or at high risk of liver fibrosis. These, this FIB4 score and all of these other um, fibrosis, indirect serum fibrosis scores um, all have very good, what we call negative predictive values. So if you get a score that's low on one of these scoring systems, so if your FIB4 scores low, um, uh, and, and usually that's sort of below 1.4 in someone under 65 or below two in someone over 65, then you can be pretty sure with over sort of 94% confidence or whatever, that they're not at that point in time have not got significant fibrosis of the liver. And that's where the vast majority of your patients are going to sit when you do these scores in the patients with mildly ab abnormal liver blood tests. If someone has a high score, um, uh, sort of above three or 3.5, then that's got quite a good positive predictive value and that they, those people need referral or, or need some next line test to look at the level of fibrosis. Unfortunately, there is a bit of a gray area in between where you're getting patients who we're not 100% sure on. And in that case, although the negative predictive value is quite good, the positive predictive value of those indeterminate scores is not that great. So you, you, you may be then in a situation where people on that score seem to have a, a high number, but actually when they go on to have a more definitive test like a fibroscan um, or a biopsy will not have liver fibrosis. But that's just the nature of the beast. And the way we use it in primary care is, is basically as a way to negatively to, to rule out the sort of bulk of the people who are not going to have fibrosis and then decide what to do as a either a second line test in primary care or a referral onto secondary care for those in those other categories. That was such a clear overview. That was so helpful. Thank you very much. Because I'm I'm always wondering about about these tests and how we apply them in practice. I don't know if I'm opening a huge can of worms, but I'm I'm one of those people that quite likes to understand and what is AST and, 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 and how, does, how is that a useful marker of fibrosis? Well, I, I probably don't know the answer to that question. Well, AST is aspartate transaminase as opposed to alanine transaminase, but why it should be higher in patients with chronic damage to the liver in ratio to ALT, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, I'm afraid. No, that's all right. I'm, I've always wondered because, yeah, and, and in our area, we have to request that test separately, actually. Yeah, as well, well I, think, I think we do in the vast majority of the, of the country, and, that, and that's pretty nonsensical, really. Um, and there's always been an argument from the laboratories and the commissioners that that's a cost. There's a cost implication mm -hmm. to doing both, and they're fairly similar tests, and you only need to do one. But I think that the mood will change over over time when everyone's being advised by all these guidelines to be using these tests in in their scoring systems, and certainly in lots of places or, or increasing number of places in the country. Um, labs are now reflex testing ASTs if ALTs are abnormal or going a step further than that using 
an automated system within the laboratory almost to kind of run this behind the scenes interpretation mm -hmm. of abnormal liver blood tests, which has been spearheaded by a group up in Dundee. Um, this what they call intelligent liver function tests, where all the GP has to do is tick a box saying intelligent liver function tests, give a little bit of information about the patient's alcohol intake and diabetes status and um, uh, BMI. And then that whole plethora of different tests gets done according to what comes back high or low or, you know, in, in conjunction with those risk factors. That sounds pretty ideal, really. So that that's, 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 yeah, that's the sensible way to do it because mm. it's like you say, it's, it's very difficult to, you know, it, it means another appointment. The patient's got to come back unless you happen to catch it within a day and can ask the lab to add on an AST. They also need a platelet count. So if they happen ha happen to have not had a full blood count, you also need to bring them back for that. Um, and then yeah. there's not necessarily integrated within EMIS or system one ways to kind of quickly interpret and, and know which patients are low or high risk, which is just silly, really. I always think that the simpler you can make it, the better, because actually bringing a patient back for another blood test is quite hard. Um, so yeah. it's, I like the idea of this um, intelligent testing in Dundee. This sounds great. I like the idea of that. That sounds really good. <laughs> How common is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? My understanding is it's very common. And how common is it for it to develop into fibrosis? So, yeah, it's very common. And, and I, I mean, obviously, the, the, the sort of studies which tell us about population prevalence are studies where they've just gone out and either done ultrasounds indiscriminately on the whole population or used some other marker of uh, coding or diagnosis for fatty liver disease based on abnormal liver blood tests. So if you take the ones that don't do imaging modalities in kind of cohorts of the population in in the sort of global epidemiology, you're looking at anything from about 20 to about sort of 40% prevalence in the adult population. So, you know, that's huge numbers of people that you could be coding as having a disease, if you want to call it that, but having some sort of um, fat on their liver as a result of kind of uh, central adiposity and, uh, you know, related to the metabolic sort of syndrome, I guess. So it is incredibly common. And this is why it's almost like, and then you make the point about, well, and then how common is it for actually to cause a problem with the liver or lead to significant um, outcomes with the liver? And that's much, much less common. So out of the people that have fat on their liver, it's probably only in the region of sort of two to 5% of them who will go on to have significant liver outcomes as a result of having that fat on the liver. But they are at more risk of lots of other outcomes, as I alluded to before, in terms of cardiovascular disease, et cetera. So there is some, you know, thoughts around, well, it's still good to know about it just as part of their risk profiling, you know, in the same way that you would want to know if someone's hypertensive or got dyslipidemia in terms of their overall management of risk and their the way that their chronic disease management would 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 run. It might be beneficial to also know, yes, they've got fat on the liver, so we need to be you know, pushing a bit more on weight loss or working a bit harder on their diabetic drugs, which promote weight loss or whatever, whatever it may be. Mm. But yeah, the, the, the liver outcomes, liver disease is not the most common cause of death in people with NAFLD, it's cardiovascular disease. Um, so yeah, general population about sort of 20 to 40%. But in terms of the number of people who are going to get NAFLD cirrhosis, you know, you might be talking about one percent or one or two percent of the population it's worrying numbers isn't it, it feels yeah. like to me 
it 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 is and I, th I think that you know it, well uh, in primary care because we you know we see lots of people with fat on the liver on ultrasounds which come through routinely and we don't necessarily know about or see huge numbers of patients who are being transplanted for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease but if you do look at the um, UK transplant data it's now the second most common reason for needing a liver transplant behind alcohol related liver disease and that that gap is 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 narrowing and in the states it's the commonest reason for needing a liver transplant so as we kind of go forward with the sort of obesity epidemic of the western world we will be seeing more people um who are starting to get you know significant outcomes as a result of their non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and there's also quite a lot of work around sort of quality of life and um, sort of softer outcomes. So in people who develop liver fibrosis as a result of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, who may not on the outside know that they're particularly ill, when you look at things like fatigue and quality of life, and they, they are significantly unwell compared to well people. Um, so it's not just those who need to go on to transplant, it's that whole long and um, slow process you know, with advanced fibrosis and then compensated cirrhosis and then starting to get the symptoms of, you know, ascites or portal hypertension or, or, or whatever it may be once they start decompensating. And at each stage, you've got less and less people on that iceberg, but the iceberg is pretty damn big. It is a big iceberg, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't really touched very much on alcohol and, and I'm conscious of the fact that we probably ought to actually, and just talk about how that process is a bit different in someone with alcohol related liver disease. Can you give us a bit yeah. of an overview? Well, I mean, the livers, I mean, I don't know, as, as, a, as a sort of simple GP, one sort of realization that came to me is that the liver kind of does the same thing, whatever, whatever the cause of the insult is, whether it's a virus or fat or alcohol or, and the thing is, these are not mutually exclusive. So lots of people who drink very heavily also have diabetes or are overweight and, and vice versa. Um, but it, it's about the speed of that process. So the liver in alcohol related liver disease still goes through that same chronic process of kind of fat and then inflammation and then stiffening or fibrosis and then scarring. But two things to note, one is that process can be much, much faster in alcohol-related liver disease than non-alcohol-related liver disease. So therefore, the age of the patients when they start becoming unwell as a result of alcohol-related liver disease, if they're very, very heavy drinkers, is, is a lot younger. So the average, you know, the average age of death or, from alcohol-related liver disease is something ridiculous, like 56 or 52 or something. I can't remember exactly, but it's, you know, it's young. Um, and then the other thing is that there can be these more acute sort of alcohol, alcoholic hepatitis type of episodes where very heavy binges or restarting drinking after a period of abstinence or can trigger this very sort of um, florid inflammatory response with kind of a high bilirubin becoming acutely jaundice and, and, and almost showing like symptoms and signs of a sort of cirrhotic patient, but be before cirrhosis has actually developed requiring kind of hospitalization and steroids and, 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 and it has, it has in itself quite a high mortality. So it's almost like the, 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 the alcohol related liver disease, the liver disease progression is much more rapid in a chronic sense, but there can also be these kind of acute 
flares of, of, of liver disease in alcohol related liver disease as well, depending on kind of drinking frequency and amount. Um, so yeah, and in terms of the risk factors, it's obviously it's obviously mm. relatively simple. It's it's alcohol, but uh, yeah. And do uh, we talked about the Fib score and things like that? Is that is that relevant in alcoholic liver disease or not? Yeah. So um, it was initially the Fib four score was initially developed in patients with hepatitis C. So it's not a specific thing for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It's just a marker of like uh, ruling out fibrosis. So in that kind of chronic trajectory of alcohol-related liver disease, then it is useful in terms of using the FIB4 score um, to look for fibrosis or damage of the liver, with the caveat that if you're drinking very heavily at a specific time, AST can be artificially raised. So you may find in some of these patients, they look like they've got very high FIB4 scores, and then they go on to have their a fibro scan or more definitive biopsy or fibrosis assessment and there there that assessment's not as bad as as the score showed so in the as a kind of result of that i think if you look at the nice guidelines for alcohol related liver disease or diagnosing cirrhosis in people who are drinking heavily they actually advise they they don't advise using these indirect serum markers or even the direct serum markers which we haven't really talked about but things like the ELF test, um, but they actually, the NICE guidelines, which were, came out in 2016, advocate that anyone who's drinking above a certain amount, and that's 50 units a week for men over a period of months, or 35 units a week for women over a period of months, should um, be put forward for uh, a fibro scan or transient elastography or fibro scan as the more definitive test to look for fibrosis in those patients because of the slight problems with with the blood tests in the kind of binge erratic drinkers okay because i think in certainly in my area the guidance sort of directs us towards referring on if they are drinking heavily and i'm assuming that that's where things like the fibro scan are being done and the potentially more comprehensive assessment exactly so in a lot of areas of the uk and we can't we can't we can't access fibroscan directly from primary care but it is changing in the area i work in we can request a fibroscan like we can request an ultrasound um and so we can we can get a we, you know we can we can refer our drinkers for fibroscans without them having to have a secondary care referral um but but yeah i mean I wrote an editorial about this in the British Journal of General Practice a few years ago, actually, is that it's probably the least followed NICE guideline of all time because no one no one can really follow it without referring in kind of huge numbers of their population because just in the same way we're talking about the kind of population prevalence of fatty liver disease, if you're really strict and ask people properly about drinking levels, it's not that hard for people to be drinking 50 units of alcohol a week for a number of months and meet the criteria to go ahead and have these assessments. So I don't think as a profession, we're referring anywhere near the number that would be due for these fibro scans according to the NICE guidelines. Yeah, it's a it's a huge thing, isn't it? And I, in terms of the assessment, we go through, we've got the audit scores and things like that, and they're all part of the algorithms in our area. Are they, are they what you use in your area as well? To Yeah. So like I said, I mean, the British Society of Gastroenterology, I'm not working for them, by the way, they uh, <laughs> promoting sponsored. everyone. Yeah, yeah, sponsored by, you know, they, um, their sort of guideline on the, on the management of abnormal liver blood tests, which came out in kind of 2018, I think it was. 
Um, it's really good, actually, because well as the sort of big algorithm that you have just for the more general interpretation of liver blood tests, which goes through, you know, cholestatic pattern versus hepatitic mm -hmm. and what to do. There are two good flow charts, one for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, detailing the use of the Fib4 and then the second line fibrosis testing and one for alcohol related liver disease on a separate sheet, which, again, just follows very nicely sort of the initial screening audit and then who to do a full audit on um, mm -hmm. what the what you units would um you know mean that they should go on to have a fibrosis test and also if they have a high score on the full audit um and who should be referred to alcohol services etc so i tend to use that which does use initially the sort of brief audit and then going on to the full audit and those yeah. that meet the criteria but i guess in most practices that the bulk of that work's being done by the the healthcare assistants in in the chronic disease management or the nurses so it's trying to make the leap from just that being recorded to that actually being acted on in a mm. systematic kind of way. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'll make sure that we put a link to the guidelines, the BSG guidelines onto the blurb with this episode so that everyone could follow that because I think it'd be really helpful. Um, so I'll make sure it's there. So look, we're yeah. coming to the end, Helen. And um, do you have any I always ask this question. Do you have any top tips for our listeners about liver disease, abnormal liver function tests, anything that you feel are really key messages to get across in, in this episode? Uh, well, I would just say, if you've got some abnormal liver function tests in front of you, don't let them stress you out. Just do something about it there and then. Do a fibrosis assessment if it's relevant, and then you can just get it off your plate. Don't just keep repeating it every few months and hoping it's going to go away because it probably won't. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, that's really helpful. Um, so thank you so much. I found that really helpful and really interesting. I, you know, it's really worrying those numbers, uh, the, the non-alcoholic fatty liver numbers are huge, aren't they? And, um, we need to have a, have an approach and a way of managing this in our, in our everyday practice. So that yeah. was really helpful. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think, I suppose that would be my other closing remark is that I think a lot of my work or, or, or thought is around kind of, yes, it's got to be integrated into our everyday chronic disease management practice, like we would with any other condition it can't be seen as something new and separate and complex totally agree so maybe it's about trying to speak to our chronic disease nurses and and trying to really help this become sort of an under you know an understood area because at the moment i think it can be a little bit um hit and miss sometimes can't it which yeah, in a way I, that it wouldn't be for other things well exactly and i think if you explain it in a kind of simplistic chronic disease management style kind of way and remove all of this mystery about Wilson's disease and alpha-1 antitrypsin and all of these things that we're never going to see and just focus on the common causes of chronic liver disease. I certainly found in my practice, the healthcare assistants and nurses have picked that up really quickly and are really engaged in incorporating that into their diabetic reviews and their other chronic disease management reviews. Great, some food for thought there. So, so thank you so much for joining me today. That's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's been great to talk through. So thank you. Thanks. So thank you very much to Helen Jarvis for joining me today on the podcast. That was a fantastic episode, really helpful to understand more about a practical and sensible approach to abnormal liver function tests, making sure that we are thinking around the different patterns that we might see. Having a think there about the non-invasive liver screen and the role of ultrasound 
in, in investigating patients with abnormal liver function tests and really helpful advice around um, how we can start to think about embedding the assessment of fatty liver disease in our clinical practice. So I hope that you found this a useful episode. I've picked up lots of really useful advice from Helen today. Um, please join us for our next episode. I'll also see if we can get Helen to come and join us again to talk a little bit more about how we can take this one step further. So how can we help to support our patients who've been diagnosed with fatty liver disease and perhaps explore more around alcoholic liver disease as well. So that we can look at in another episode. So thank you very much for joining me today. I hope you all have a lovely day.